the interest of, you know, everybody's bringing a friend for the Christmas season, and so uh, without putting people on the spot, uh, we thought we'd move communion to uh, Wednesday night. So uh, just a heads up on that. And then uh, just a quick reminder today, after the second service, is uh, the Discovering Trinity class. Uh, Those who are new to the church are invited to come along. Uh, We'll meet right in the library at 1130, and uh, we'll have a little lunch, and then uh, uh, we'll talk about uh, the church, and you can ask any questions you wish. Uh, especially if you're thinking about being baptized or becoming a member of our church in a formal way, uh, that's the class for you. This morning we come to um, our last uh, message from the book of Hebrews, not because there isn't more to say, but because next Sunday, Lord willing, we'll begin to focus uh, on Christmas. And uh, appropriately, our portion from uh, Hebrews chapter 12 this morning is about finishing well, finishing well. You know, Hebrews 12 compares the Christian life to a race. You remember in uh, Hebrews 12 and uh, verse 1, let us run the race that is set before us uh, looking to Jesus. Let us run the race. The the Christian life is like a marathon, as uh, Margie mentioned. Uh, The only problem with uh, marathons or races is that um, there's always more people who begin than who finish. Right? Right? In a marathon, there are always more people who begin the race uh, than who finish it. Starting is exciting, but finishing it can be really tough. You know, just uh, think about something that perhaps you've started in your life and then found too tough to finish and sort of bailed out on it. Uh, Starting is exciting, but finishing can be uh, hard. And so so often we respond, you know, to the Lord's discipline – Uh, As we talked about last week, um, how we respond to that discipline often determines uh, how we actually finish the race. You know, things come up in life, right, in our Christian life, things that discourage us. Uh, We get tired after a while. Uh, Different people can be a trial to us, and, and, uh, you know, we know what the Lord says, but it becomes harder as we uh, go along sometimes to live what the Spirit is prompting us to live. In the Boston Marathon, there's the famous, you know, Heartbreak Hill. It's the last uh, incline in the race. It's the longest. It's the steepest. It's about a half a mile of uh, defying gravity. And, uh, you know, by the end of that hill, uh, there's a number of people who have just bailed out of the race and quit. And there's another number of people who become walkers instead of runners at that point in the race, even though... Uh, once you come out of that incline, there's still four miles to go. And, um, <clears throat> but the point of the race is to finish, right? And uh, even though everything in our bodies is screaming at us and saying, quit and stop, the goal of the race is to finish. And we always admire uh, those people who finish the race. And so, you know, last week after the second service uh, here at church, we honored Dan and Nancy Butterfield uh, because they're moving to Pennsylvania And uh, they've been serving in this church for 73 years. They're models of what it means to finish well, right? They've been up many heartbreak hills in this church, right? But they finished their service here, and they're going to pick up there. They finished uh, well. And when I think about that, 73 years, I realize that they've subscribed to the idea that if I think something could be better in my church... I get involved, and I put my shoulder to the wheel, and I try to make it better. And they've lived by that for 73 years. Uh, When they're upset with something and think it could be better, they uh, work to bring about change. 
And so, you know, the people to whom the book of Hebrews was written um, started out well. If you look in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 32, uh, the author says, look, recall the former days. These people were getting tired. These people were up against taking a lot of hits. They were ready to bail on their faith in Christ and go back to their old religion, back to Judaism. And why was that? They started out so well. Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, when you first got to know the gospel, you endured such a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those who were treated like that. You had compassion on those who were in prison. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession, an abiding one in a place called heaven. And therefore, don't throw away your confidence now which has great reward, for you have need of what? Endurance. You have need of perseverance. So uh, once you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Um, these people started out well, like so many people in the Christian life, start out well. But they were getting tired. They were getting discouraged. They, they remind me of like a football team. If you watch a football game at the beginning of the game, Everybody's smiling, everybody's high-fiving, everybody's jumping around, they've got energy. By the end of the game, some people are cramped up, some people are winded, some people are walking around with their you know, hands on their, shoulder, on their hips trying to catch their breath and so on. And um, you know, to begin is easy, but to finish, and to finish well, uh, what a difference that makes. And so what is it that we have to do? Well, in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 12, where we pick up where we left off, uh, the author of the book of Hebrews says, therefore, since the Lord disciplines us, that's what we talked about last week in the previous part of this passage, since he disciplines us so that we can share in his nature and his holiness, therefore, what should we do when we get tired? What should we do when we feel like we're up against it and we want to slow down and we want to quit? Therefore, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. This is like, uh, the author of Hebrews sounds like a coach to me on the sidelines, you know, like in the fourth quarter saying, suck it up. Suck it up. We don't have that much time left, you know, and we're either winning or losing or it doesn't really matter, you know. Don't give in. Whatever you do, don't give in. But um, put your shoulder to the grindstone, you know. Um, these Christians were ready to give up. And Hebrews 12, 12 is like, uh, don't give in. When you run a race, right? Whenever you run a race, you know that you always hit a wall. Isn't that right? You ever try to run and you get to that point where you just want to give up? You hit a wall, they call it, right? You, you, you feel like everything in you just wants to slow down, wants to back out, wants to quit. Spiritually, when we hit a wall, the same thing happens. We want to give up. We want to slow down. We want to stop praying. We want to just veg out in front of the TV and let the world go away. We don't want to own the responsibility of moving forward in the plan that God has for the duration of our life. I, if I had a dollar for every time somebody told me, you know, well, I'm old and I'm tired and I'm out of the game, let the younger people take care of it. I'd be a wealthy guy. What we don't understand is that as we get to the end of the race in the spiritual life, we have more collective wisdom and we have more of uh, experience with God that the next generation needs to learn from us. And when we step out of the race and veg out in front of the TV, we rob God of what his will is for our life. 
And so when we hit that wall and you feel like you can't breathe and your arms droop and your hands flop and your knees wobble, um, you know that when you push through that wall, what's on the other side of that wall? They call it your second wind. And all of a sudden there's this re-energizing that comes over you and you discover you had way more than you thought when you first hit the wall. You have more reserve in you than you realize. And that second wind begins to kick in. And it's the same thing spiritually. When we hit that wall and we do what the author of Hebrews says and we you know, uh, lift up our drooping hands and strengthen our weak knees and make straight paths for our feet and so forth, all of a sudden we discover on the other side of that wall, God has more for us. And God shows up in ways that we didn't expect. And God shows up in ways that we hadn't maybe experienced before as we push through that wall. And I think that's what the author of Hebrews is saying. Uh, when, when we um, uh, exercise faith as we come up against that wall, when we exercise uh, perseverance, God is there for us on the other side. Um, and he says, you know, uh, straighten, notice what he says there, strengthen your weak knees, make straight paths. Uh, those two words, strengthen and straighten, come from the same Greek word, and the, the word is orthos, and it's the word that we get, uh, orth, ortho, um, what's bread? Orthopedics. Uh, it just went away from me, sorry. Uh, orthopedics, and what happens? Well, you know, if you break your arm and it's bent like that, well, you go see the orthopedic doctor, and what does he do? He straightens it and makes it grow so that it becomes strengthened. In fact, a lot of times where the break was, it's stronger than it ever was before, and that's what he's saying. You know, break, if you push through, uh, you make straight paths. And, you know, this is really nothing new. If we went back to Isaiah 35, it's almost a quote from Isaiah 35. This has been going on for a long time. People hit walls. And uh, they have to make a decision. Am I going to exercise my faith? And am I going to push through that wall and allow God to show up in a new way? Uh, living a God-first life is really full of hardships and, and full of God's discipline, as we learned last week, to uh, foster our character. And we continually need to count on God showing up on the other side of that uh, wall. And uh, notice what he says here in the next verse. He says, lift up your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. I think if you watch a marathon, aren't you always impressed with the people who are running a marathon or doing a marathon in a wheelchair or you know, with a prosthesis and somebody comes alongside and helps them to the finish line? And I think the Christian life, the marathon of the Christian life, is never meant to be lived alone. And it's hard for us Americans to understand this, but notice what that 13th verse says. It says, you know, you make straight paths for your feet. You get your feet on the ground. You get established. You get uh, exercised. You make sure that you're, you know, ready to go. Why? Well, um, so that what's lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. So that you can help the next person who maybe is lame. You can help the next person who's maybe struggling. You can help the next person who maybe needs encouragement. Uh, running a marathon, you know, is not just for me, but it's so that I can help my neighbor, so that I can love my neighbor. You remember at one point a lawyer came to Jesus when he was here. And the lawyer asked a question that I think every single person has to ask uh, from the bottom of their heart. It's really a big question. Uh, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And that's a pretty big question. Remember when the lawyer came to Jesus and said, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? That's a big question. 
And in response, in Luke chapter 10, Jesus told the story of the uh, Good Samaritan. Jesus said, it's about loving my neighbor as myself. Like the ultimate evidence that God has taken up residence in our life is that we love our neighbor, love the next person, love the lame person uh, as we love ourselves. And I think, you know, that's uh, so important for us to understand when we think about it as a, a marathon. Um, it's in loving my neighbor as myself that uh, the reality of God's presence is uh, demonstrated in me. Um, don't let anything take you out of the race and don't ever stop helping uh, the next person. In Matthew 25, Jesus says at the end of our lives we'll be judged, really, on uh, whether or not we helped the lame, if you will. Uh, whether we uh, fed the hungry and uh, sheltered the homeless and took care of the sick and visited the imprisoned and, and so on and so forth. Well, how do we do all that? How do we do that? Well, the next verse in verse 14, it says this, strive, strive, strive for peace with everyone, right? And for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. How do we press forward? What's, what's, what's it about Jesus that we're uh, at, the, at the finish of the race? Two things, the author says here. Two ways to move forward uh, in the Christian life. Strive. Uh, the word strive actually uh, means work at it. It's, it's like make every effort to live at peace with all people. To live at peace with all people and uh, to acquire the holiness or the character of God. To do the right thing according to our Father in heaven um, no matter what the cost, to strive. Uh, to strive is an aggressive word. It's not a passive word. It's an aggressive word, right? It's something we have to do. We have to take initiative. It doesn't just happen. Strive. And uh, originally, that word meant to strive after your enemies to persecute them. But the author of Hebrews uses that word and turns it around and says, you strive and run after your enemies even um, in order that you might uh, have peace with them. Like it's our responsibility. It's our, it's, we're to take the effort. We're to strive. How do you finish the race? We're to strive for peace uh, with all people. And um, not only that, but then also um, to strive to be holy. To strive to be holy. You know, striving uh, for peace with people in Ephesians, um, I want to make this point in Ephesians. Uh, Chapter 4 and uh, verse 3, um, how we respond to conflict. There's always conflict in the Christian life. If you're going to live a Christian life like Jesus, you're going to encounter conflict. There's always counter, there's conflict. But how we respond to conflict, um, the Apostle Paul is praying for the Ephesian church, and he say, I, I'm urging you, you know, with all humility and gentleness and patience, bear with one another in love eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, striving. How we respond to conflict is so important. And uh, you can think about that in a lot of different um, contexts. My favorite uh, response in Romans chapter uh, 12 talks about this. You know, if possible, so far as depends upon you. Whose initiative is this? It's our initiative. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with everybody. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. I'll take care of it. Your job is to try and uh, come to a place of peace. 
with everyone. And God's job is to uh, bring vengeance. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, you know, blessed is the peacemaker. Blessed is the peacemaker. How do we move forward? Uh, Well, uh, we make peace with everyone, and then we strive to be holy or to embrace the character or to acquire the character of God, of being remade in his likeness. The way to finish well is to strive for peace with everyone and to uh, strive for holiness for ourselves. And this is a uh, you know, pretty serious statement. Strive for peace with everyone and for holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. How serious is this? How serious is this? Here again, how do we finish well? And uh, if we don't strive for peace with people, and if we don't strive for holiness, if these things are unimportant to you, if you don't really care about becoming more like Christ, we don't really care about God's will for our lives, uh, it's evidence that we're not really a believer. We'll never really see the Lord. Without these things, we won't finish well. Every genuine believer has the very spirit of God prompting them to holiness and to peace with other people, to do the right thing regardless, you know. And then uh, here's what not to do. Uh, verse 15, as we move through this passage, here, those are the things that we need to do. Here's what not to do if you want to finish well, okay? See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Uh, Don't miss the grace of God. Uh, God's grace is God's undeserved favor. It's his mercy. It's his attitude toward us. It's his will for us. You remember in Hebrews chapter 4 that we're invited into the very presence of God when we become Christians. In Hebrews chapter 4, and that God is sitting on a throne of grace. Number one thing, make sure that nobody misses the grace of God. Um, Let us come with confidence and draw near to the throne of grace that we may find peace and help, you know, in our times of need. The very throne upon which God sits is grace. You can't approach God apart from grace. Do your best to make sure that nobody misses the grace of God. Now, in James... In the book of James, in chapter 4, uh, verse 6, this is the greatest verse in the world, I think. Uh, a truth that God uh, tells us starts maybe in uh, verse 5. Um, God yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. God puts his spirit in us. And the spirit is always speaking to us. The spirit is always prompting us. And God's jealous that we won't allow that spirit to control our lives, Right? And so there's this yearning that God has. He yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us. And then verse 6, but he gives more grace. But he gives more grace. Can I say, there's always more grace. There's always more grace. This is the greatest thing. There's always more grace. Uh, You can't come up with a need in your life that God's grace can't cover. There is always more grace. And uh, when you think about the worst possible sin you can imagine, I'm telling you God's grace is greater. Sometimes people will say uh, something like, you know, there's no way that God could ever forgive me for what I've done. Have you ever had somebody say that to you? And it's a great thing. It's a privileged thing to be able to say, you are dead wrong. 
there's always more grace. I don't care what you've done. There is always more grace. But how tragic would it be to miss the grace of God, to fall short of the grace of God? And do you know how it happens? The next verse, or that sixth verse, um, God gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. You know what cuts grace out of a person's life? Pride. Pride will separate you from grace. Because pride says, I don't really need God's grace. Pride says, I know what to do, I'm going to do it myself. Pride uh, separates us from the grace of God. Uh, Pride or self-righteousness separates us. And notice God says he gives his grace to the humble. Um, God opposes the proud. That's why grace is cut off. But he gives grace to the humble. What does it mean to be humble? Verse 7, submit. That's what it means to be humble. Submit. Submit yourself to God. Submit yourself, right? That's what it means to be humble. God resists, opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Submission. Um, And and you'll notice that um, in Hebrews 12, verse 15, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. We are responsible to see that the next person doesn't miss out on the grace of God. Us. You want to finish well? Do your best for the balance of your life to make sure that nobody in your sphere of influence is unaware of the grace of God, both by the way you live and by the word you speak. By word and deed, the message of God goes forward. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. We are responsible to make sure that other people, right, don't fall short of the grace of God. That's why this Christmas we're saying, look, we're going to change our services around and we're going to encourage everybody to bring a friend or uh, a relative or anybody, right? And bring, because what we're going to try to do is expose them to the grace of God that came to us in Christ at Christmas. We think that if, if any there's any time of the year that people are more likely to accept your invitation to come to church, it would be at Christmas. And so um, we're uh, working really hard to uh, have those services be unique. And we're encouraging you. Think about and begin to pray about who it is that uh, God has put on your heart that is coming short of the grace of God. They're just not enjoying the undeserved favor of God. Uh, Because we're responsible for that. You know, we don't finish well when we miss out on God's grace. And uh, we miss out on God's grace, I think, really, uh, because of pride. And pride shows up in three different ways, I would suggest to you, just so we can put some feet onto this. I think pride shows up, first of all, when we ignore God's word. When we ignore God's word. God is a speaking God, and he speaks through his word. When you don't read this word, and you don't meditate on it, and you ignore it, you put it on a shelf, and you never turn there, and you never let God speak to you, it's just like God is speaking. You turn your back on him, right? And what does that? Pride. I already know what I'm going to do. I don't need anybody telling me how to live. You know, I don't need anybody telling me, you know, what I should do. I'll make my own decisions. I'll live my own life and so forth. When we refuse to read his word, uh, I think pride uh, shows itself when we ignore his word and uh, refuse to think on it, you know, because 
God is a speaking God, and that's pride. And, and instead of listening and learning from God's word and having that humble kind of attitude that says, I'm ready to submit, tell me what you want me to know for today when we ignore his word. Second, I think our pride shows up when we refuse to confess our sin. We all sin. And uh, pride shows up and says, you know, uh, makes excuses and has rationalizations and so forth. We refuse to agree with God on what's right and wrong, and we rationalize. Or we blame other people, or we lie to ourselves and so forth. Or people are always saying, well, you know, the times are changing, and, you know, you can't take the Bible literally. And, you know, in this day and age, it's different than then, and blah, blah, blah. You know, but all of it is amounting to pride that says, I'm not going to allow God to back me into a corner to make me agree with him. I'm not going to confess my sin. Well, then God's not going to give you his grace because you think you don't need it and you don't want it, you know? And then third, I think uh, pride shows up uh, when uh, we live in such a way that we don't hang out with other Christians in any significant way. And uh, we're not accountable and we don't let other people know us. You know, I say the best thing about being a Christian the best thing between God and me, right, is that I am fully known by God and fully loved at the same time. To be fully known and to be fully loved. And when we have meaningful relationships with other Christians and they get to really know us and in spite of us, love us, when we have that experience of the relationship that exists between us and God, when you really get to know somebody, right? We spend a lot of our lives trying to hide stuff from other people, you know, so that you'll like me. Because if you knew everything about me, the fear is you might not love me anymore. But with God, you know, we have this tremendous thing, fully known and fully loved at the same time. And when we experience that in Christian community, you know, I came to this church um, in the summer of uh, 1973. It was when I first started, okay? And uh, in that October of 1973, my mother died. And uh, we had the funeral for her down in New Jersey, okay? And uh, totally unexpected and unbeknown to me, when I was at my mom's funeral, a group of people from this church showed up. I had no idea. It was during the week. They took time off of work, right? They didn't really know me. They'd never met my mom. They just came, as I took it, as this giant act of grace. And it meant so much to me. And they didn't even know me. I just got here, right? But what did they do? They just, they just showed up. And they just took that initiative. And by grace... They blessed me so much, and I still remember to this day that group of people who took a day off, drove all the way down to New Jersey. They didn't know me. They didn't know my mom. They didn't know my dad. But they wanted to, they wanted to say, hey, we love you. you know, And we, we figure this is a, a tough time for you and, and so forth. And uh, when, when that happened, you know, I still, like to this day, think about it as an experience of that grace of God that's undeserved. It is totally undeserved. Right? And, you know, when we give that to one another, all of a sudden it was like there was a taste of the essence of God's love. It was a huge uh, favor that was completely undeserved. In Ephesians chapter 3, where I often read to close our services, 
In Ephesians chapter 3, uh, the Apostle Paul is praying for this group of Christians, you know. And um, <clears throat> he's saying, according to the riches of God's glory, may he grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have the strength to comprehend, now listen, with all the saints, the strength to comprehend the love of God with all the saints. How do you ever comprehend the love of God unless it comes to us through each other experientially? Unless you get to know something about me that really, you know, uh, you, you, you don't like and choose to love anyway. If I offend you and you choose to forgive anyway and love anyway, the, 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 with all the saints, all of a sudden becomes this reality of the love of God. With all the saints, what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge so that you could be filled to the fullness of God? How does that happen? It doesn't happen apart from one another. It doesn't happen apart from us getting to know each other, being offended by each other because we all fall short and choosing to love each other the way God loves me in spite of how I've offended you, you know, and how we've offended him. Um, that passage in Hebrews where it says, um, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, see to it, okay, is a plural command. It's kind of an unusual uh, Greek construction thing. Uh, see to it is a plural command, which means it's everybody's responsibility, which means you cannot dump this off on the pastor. <laughs> see to it that no one falls short of the grace of God, either by your actions or by your words. See to it. You want to finish the race well? See to it that nobody falls short of the grace of God. Now, here's what happens if people do fall short of the grace of God. The second part of verse 15. See to it that nobody fails to obtain the grace of God so that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it, many become defiled. I'll tell you what happens if you don't live off the grace of God and extend it to the next person is you get bitter. You get bitter. There's a root of bitterness that begins to um, uh, spring up, right? Uh, bitterness is the opposite of grace. And uh, if you read this verse really kind of literally, you know, it's an obsession with being offended. Somebody offends you. Somebody treats you wrong. You become, in our day, we would call it an obsession. We get obsessed with that. We can't let it go. And it begins to fester down inside. A root begins to develop, a root of bitterness. And that root of bitterness can stay there for years, and nobody can even see it. It's under the ground. It's hidden, right? And then all of a sudden, look what the verse says. It springs up. All of a sudden, out of nowhere. Have you ever had this experience where you think somebody is just, you know, you know, very loving and even and, and fine, and then all of a sudden something triggers and that root of bitterness springs up and they're, un, you know, they're uh, mad in a way that's excessive at something that's minor that happened. You say, where on earth did that come from? You know, well, it's the root of bitterness and it, and it springs up and then look what it says, um, it causes trouble. <laughs> Would you agree with that? When that happens, it causes trouble, right? There are whole families who are not going to be able to get together for Thanksgiving because some root of bitterness sprung up and caused a lot of trouble in the family. So I'm not coming to your house, and you're not going to, I'm feeding you turkey, and blah, 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 and on and on it goes, right? And that whole thing just happens, and, um, and then by it, many other people become defiled. Instead of you spreading grace to people, 
right? This root of bitterness defiles people. It, it pushes them away from God rather than towards God. It gives them a taste of bitterness instead of a taste of God's love. Um, and it affects many people. Our bitterness is not just about ourselves. Uh, bitterness is like poison that spreads and, and uh, lots of people get defiled. Um, and usually uh, people who uh, are bitter like this are kind of self-righteous and uh, they can be really vicious when it comes to running down the next person. Um, and then the final warning of what not to do if we want to finish well is to be alert not to give in to our appetites. Um, verse 16 says, you know, see to it, <clears throat> again, uh, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. Um, see to it that nobody gives in to their appetites. What can uh, destroy finishing well uh, is giving priority not to our spiritual lives but our physical life. When all of a sudden our physical life is more important to us than our spiritual life um, and we give in to our appetites, we end up not finishing so well. And Esau is held up here as an example. And uh, Esau, you know, was... Uh, when it says there, uh, see to it that nobody is sexually immoral, the word immoral in the Greek language is pornos. It's the word that we get uh, our word pornography from. And uh, Esau, you know, uh, in chapter 26 of Genesis, we read about Esau. You remember Esau was uh, a twin. Uh, Esau and Jacob, right, were twins. And uh, Esau was the older one. He was born first, and so that entitled him to several things. But uh, look what it says, verse 34 of Genesis 26. When Esau was 40, <clears throat> 40 years old, he took um, Judith, the daughter of Beeri, uh, the Hittite. He married Canaanite women, two women, two Hittites, uh, to be his wife. And uh, Basemath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite. And they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah, their parents, right? They made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. Um, physical. And then, uh, well, in chapter 25, if you just look back a couple of uh, verses, in chapter 25, verse 29 is a famous, uh, you know, because he was born first, he had uh, entitlement, kind of like Old Testament grace. He was entitled to the birthright because he was born first, and he was entitled to the Father's blessing, and he gave them both up. He gave up his birthright, in other words, his spiritual heritage that had come to him from God because he was born first, uh, verse 29, once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I'm exhausted. And therefore his name was called Edom, which means red. And uh, Jacob said, uh, sell me your birthright. Sell me your birthright right now. And Esau said, I'm about to die. What use is a birthright to me? Well, if he had the birthright and he respected it, he would know he wasn't going to die because God would have fulfilled uh, the birthright, right, to him, and, and so on. Um, so Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank, and he rose, and he went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Now suppose you got into a situation where you had to give up your Christianity. That's what these people were doing in Hebrews. You had to give up your faith in Christ or eat. I mean, with all the things that are going on in our world, you can envision that. That's what happens to other people in different places of the world, right? You put a gun to somebody's head and say, you either give up your faith or you get blown away. And uh, the scriptures say, thus Esau despised his birthright. He valued his physical uh, nature over his spiritual 
nature. And uh, we could go on explaining in details, but um, all of this is just an illustration of Esau as a disaster uh, when God's not first in our life, when we don't value God's grace and just uh, give in to our physical appetites and ignore our uh, spiritual treasures that we have in Christ. And then the last verse in this section says this about Esau, for you know that afterwards when Esau desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. His father had already given the blessing to Jacob. His mother put him up to it. You remember the whole family's dysfunctional and deceitful and the whole thing's going on there. We could read all of that, but we don't have time this morning. So as we uh, live out our Christian lives to the end, as we run the race, uh, I would suggest to you that it gets tougher. It's easy to start the race. If you're going to finish well, it's going to get harder, right? I mean, just think about a marathon. The closer you get to the end, the tougher uh, it gets to keep running. And uh, God disciplines us. We're tempted by our physical appetites to go soft spiritually and to give in instead of finishing well. I'd just like to leave you with two verses uh, from this chapter that sort of summarize, I think, the whole uh, book of Hebrews. Uh, Verse 25 says this, See to it that you do not refuse him who's speaking. God is a speaking God. See to it in your life, between now and the end of your life, that you do not refuse this God who's speaking to you if you want to finish well. And then verse 28, uh, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Don't mess with God when it comes to worship, right? God first. I think those two verses summarize the essence of Hebrews and very appropriate for uh, Thanksgiving week. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. The kingdom of this world's on the way out. It's going to be taken away from us. Let's pray together. Gracious God and Father, your word is so rich and so full and so helpful and so full of life. And I pray that we would be a group of people who don't refuse you when you're speaking. It's so easy, Father, for us to think that, you know, we already know what you're going to say. We've already had enough of you, and we stop uh, somewhere along in the race uh, listening to you. And we refuse to allow you to speak to us at deeper levels and and, uh, as you call us to go further in the race. And so I pray, Father, that you would take this book of Hebrews and... uh, that all of us would remember the things that we've learned and that when we come to that point where we hit that wall spiritually and we're tempted, Father, to take our foot off the accelerator and we're tempted to just drop out of the race and we're tempted to just uh, you know, give in to our natural inclinations instead of uh, looking forward, Father, to being spiritually stronger at the end of the race than even at the beginning. Uh, I pray you'll help us to learn these lessons and to appreciate them for Jesus' sake. Amen.